Welcome to the Baseball America podcast. Baseball America, bringing you baseball news you can't get anywhere else for more than 35 years. Now it's time to talk baseball. Welcome to another edition of the Baseball America podcast. J.J. Cooper and Ben Badler joining you today. We're going to talk a little Phillies prospects as we continue to roll through the uh, American, the American, the National League East. We've already done the Marlins. If you are a Marlins fan, you missed that. Go back and uh, download the podcast for the Marlins. We have already done the Mets. Here's the Phillies. As far as our schedule, we'll do the Braves on Wednesday. We will wrap up the, uh, the NL East with the Nationals on Thursday. So those are coming up. But today we are talking the Phillies and the Phillies rebuilding process, and a lot of the prospects will be a big part of that. Ben Badler just wrote our Phillies top 30 this year, our top 10 that's in the magazine, the top 30. That's part of the prospect handbook, which, as we always do, we'll remind you, you can buy your prospect handbook now. We will be shipping it in literally, when I say weeks, it's hopefully less than less than three, hopefully less than two. We're going to hopefully be shipping the uh, book right around the end of the month for the people who buy it from Baseball America. How do you buy it from Baseball America? Store.baseballamerica.com. You get it first. And by first, we mean you get it a month or so before anyone else gets it. So with that long interlude, Ben, you look at this Phillies list, you look at where the Phillies are right now, and, and I do feel like they're not at... <laughs> They're not at the beginning of the end of the rebuilding process, but they are at the end of the beginning, uh, to quote uh, uh, Churchill, I guess, here. But where do you kind of see where this process is? I, I feel like it's, I, I can see where it's going now much easier than you could uh, a, a little while ago. Yeah, I guess I would call it the middle <laughs> of the rebuilding process is the word I would use. It's, are they going to be a playoff contender this year? I don't think so. If they were, that would that would surprise me uh, quite a bit. They would need a lot of things to go right. But you know, we're looking at a team that's consistently been one of the worst teams in baseball for for a while now. And I think right now they they have a chance to be sort of a a middle of the pack team this year. I don't think they're gonna compete, but I don't think they're gonna compete for the number one overall pick in the drafts either uh, in, in 2018. And if we were talking at this time team, last year, we would not be saying that. Yeah, so I don't I don't think there should be any expectations that the Phillies should contend this year, but I do think you're going to see a lot more signs of hope for the future at the major league level this year with prospects coming up to the major league team, uh, especially – in the lineup that you know you just you didn't see much of at all in uh, in 2016 or the last couple of years, and then come 2018, I think yeah, this is this team is lined up to potentially uh, contend in 2018, both with the talent they have, uh, both the young talent that they have uh, on the major league roster right now. The, this kind of wave, especially of position prospects that they have at the AA and AAA level, and then also they have a ton of money that they are going to be able to spend on free agents to to supplement the you know the homegrown core that they're trying to build. Yeah, I, you look at this right now, and, and I do feel like the key is is I, I do think that that Cole Hamels trade is obviously we're going to be talking about a couple of players who are involved in that but 
the Cole Hamels trade was, was key because they got not just quantity, but they got quantity of guys who were not that far away. And, and this is why we're going to be talking about some of these guys. We won't be talking about these guys in 2018. Kind of, they're not the top of the list, though. Number one on this list, again, J.P. Crawford, shortstop, made it up to AAA last year. But I think it's fair to say that overall, his, his 2016 season will probably be remembered as being a little disappointing. But that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't really kind of take too much to shine away from who is still one of, a guy who's still one of the best shortstop prospects in the game. What do you think was kind of the problem for, the problems for uh, Crawford in 2016? And what do you think that those problems mean going forward? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest, you know, the strengths for J.P. Crawford are, have always been his, his plate discipline. He has an extremely sharp eye. At the plate, he he recognizes balls and strikes. He's able to hit fastballs, breaking pitches. Uh, he, he doesn't expand the strike zone. He can get on base at a at a very high clip, which is why he's a, a potential leadoff hitter. And then defensively, that that has never slumped for him. I mean, some guys struggle at the plate and, and they carry with them in the field. He's he's never done that. All of the all of the reviews this year uh, from uh, from scouts on him were that he, he's still, uh, you know, a plus defender at shortstop, even though uh, they're, they're, he, he is a good athlete. There are guys who are, are, are twitchier and, and faster runners than he is, but uh, he's a good athlete, and, and the actions and, and the instincts help uh, everything play up, and, and obviously the arm is there too. I think the, the things that got him into trouble this year are, look, one, he, he just needs to get stronger. You're not seeing him uh, – do, do much damage when he does make contact with the baseball. He's never been a big power hitter. I don't think that's going to be a big part of his game, but he's also not, we're not talking about a guy who's, you know, five foot nine, some, right. some scrappy slap hitter. You know, this guy is, you know, six foot two. Uh, there's some room for, for his frame and there's bad speed there. There, there. There's a chance this guy could grow into 15 to, to 20 home run power. Uh, maybe even even more. I think there's a lot of untapped potential in in terms of his power output in the future. And we're talking about somebody who's still, I guess he had, he's just turned 22 years old, so he was 21 years old last season. And in AAA, that's, that's an extremely, you know, 21 years old. We're talking about college juniors who are, you know, Nick Senzel, these guys who are, oh, they're getting into low A, and if they get to high A, we're talking about moving them quickly. <laughs> Through, through the system in their draft year. So I think that, that need for him to get stronger, uh, coupled with him trying to sort of artificially manufacture power, and what I mean by that is he's, he, he kind of got into this bad habit where he, uh, you know, step in the bucket, kind of leak open early with his hips, try to yank the ball for power rather than stay within that short, con- compact, controlled, more disciplined swing that he's typically had throughout his career in the minor leagues, focusing on getting on base, hitting the line drives. I'm not talking about necessarily hitting the ball on the ground and then being a slap hitter, but he, he got into a habit where he's trying to just kind of sell out for power and, and yank and, and, and try to crank the ball for a home run, maybe keep up a little bit with uh, Dylan Cousins or Reese Hoskins and some of those other uh, Jorge Alfaro and those other uh, bigger boppers, Nick Williams in, in the system. So 
Uh, I think once he gets back to maintaining that more disciplined approach, not not in terms of the plate discipline, that's always been there, but staying disciplined with his swing, staying disciplined with what he's trying to do in terms of his his plan for how he wants to swing, uh, staying staying within that line drive approach, using the whole field. I think that's going to be. Uh, I think that you're going to see a better balance, happy medium from him uh, going forward in 2017. And when you couple that, once once the strength comes, then he'll be able to get get more of a, a natural. That power will come more naturally for him. Where all right now he's hitting doubles in the gap. All of a sudden, some of those doubles are going to start carrying over the fence for him, and that just comes with natural physical project uh, progression for somebody who's 21, 22 in their early 20s, uh, growing into some some natural strength and letting the power come that way. The thing that stands out with me, and I'm not saying he's the same guy, I think that Francisco Lindor is better, but if you remember when Francisco Lindor was in the minors, I mean, there was a lot of questions. There were questions, legit questions about his power. Lindor is a smaller guy, and Lindor never hit for power to any significant degree in the minors. You know, if you look at Lindor, Lindor's, Again, different leagues at times, but Lindor's career minor league numbers, 279, 354, 384. J.P. Crawford's minor league numbers, 278, 372, 387. Yeah, there was some Reading time in there, but at the same time there was some FSL time in there too, which is a uh, uh, Clearwater is not a particularly easy park to hit home runs. What I mean by that is just that the reason I bring that up is, is Lindor was a guy who hit six, ten, you know, six, seven, eight, in the minors, gets to the majors, and all of a sudden you're seeing 12 home runs, 15 home runs. I, I would not be surprised at all if J.P. Crawford had a similar power spike in the not-too-distant future. I, I completely agree with you. I don't. I would not be surprised at all if you see Crawford. He's not going to be a 30-home run guy or anything like that, but if you told me that J.P. Crawford ends up being a guy who, who you see 12 to 15 from pretty regularly as a 23, 24, 25-year-old, that would not shock me at all. Lefty bat, who, you know, at shortstop is always a nice little added bonus to me. I, I, I kind of, the thing that just jumps out to me with, with, with Crawford is, is that, yeah, it's easy to be a little bit disappointed by his 2016 season, but you, you look at the, the total package here, and it's still, even if he doesn't make the uh, offensive improvements that we expect, he's still a long-term big leaguer at shortstop. And if he does make those improvements we expect, he could be really a, a very valuable shortstop for years to come. Yeah, yeah, I think I think two things can be true. One is that he did have a disappointing season. I, I thought J.P. Crawford was going to be in the major leagues for the Phillies in, mm-hmm. in 2016, yeah. be a, potentially a rookie of the year candidate. So his season was disappointing. That said, he also is still a potential franchise player for them. I mean, he's disappointing, and yet on my, on my top 50 prospects list that's in the prospect handbook, I have him at, at number 11 overall. So I still think this guy is one of the premium prospects in baseball, and I think a lot of us in the office still still think that as well, despite what what I think objectively was, was a disappointing yeah. season for him. Now, after him, some interesting debates. You had Mickey Moniak, who isn't two on our list, Jorge Alfaro, three, Nick Williams, four. Uh, Williams at four, I think, is probably safely not in the discussion for number one. But how much did you kind of think of Moniak as potentially a number one, Alfaro as potentially a number one, or was that a pretty pretty easy uh, order to you? 
To me, the just in terms of the number one prospects for the Phillies, J.P. Crawford was a pretty easy number one. Now, if you said, is Mickey Moniak going to be a better prospect or going to be a better major leaguer? Uh, well, if he, or I just say, if Mickey Moniak turns out to be a better major league player than J.P. Crawford, I would not be surprised at all. I love Mickey Moniak. I think Mickey Moniak was a, a very good pick as the number one overall pick in the draft, and I think he's going to be a, a chance to be a, a great player for the Phillies. But we're talking about still somebody who is, uh, you know, an 18-year-old in in rookie ball versus somebody who's basically knocking on the on the doorstep who has AAA experience and right. is, you know, a potential franchise shortstop for them. So it wasn't that close, but to me, all that said, even though Jorge Alfaro, like what I was just talking about, Jorge Alfaro has experience at the major league level. Nick Williams has experience at AAA, just spent a, a full season there. I still thought Mickey Moniak wasn't too hard of a decision for me to put Mickey Moniak above those two guys, which speaks in part to uh, both some of the, the the flaws in in Alfaro and, and Nick Williams' game, as, as much as I like those guys, uh, but also just the talent that Mickey Moniak has. This is a guy who has you know tools skills, a lot of strengths, and not many weaknesses for, again, relative to his age, uh, everything that Mickey Moniak does just comes so so easily to him. I mean, it's, it's easy to, uh, it's part of our job is to try to poke holes in, in all these guys and say what could go wrong with these guys. And, and with Mickey Moniak, there aren't too many holes that you can poke in his game. Uh, maybe some of them will be revealed in, in 2017, once he actually plays a, a full season of, of professional baseball. But for right now, there's there's not too many weaknesses that you can identify with, with Mickey Moniak. Yeah, and, and then I feel like that Jorge Alfaro, if you're talking about the of these guys, Crawford had a little had a disappointing season, as you put it. Moniak was in the GCL. He hadn't had a full season yet. Nick Williams had a disappointing season in some ways. Jorge Alfaro is the guy from this group who really had kind of a, a step forward season in 2016. And as, not as much at the plate, although he did do thing, good things at the plate as well. But it, uh, defensively, I, I feel like it's he's finally starting to turn that long, that potential that I've heard talked about for, by scouts, by coaches for years. Uh, as a catcher, he, he's, he's cleaning up some things to where he's more reliable back there defensively than he was a year ago or especially three, four years ago when he already was a pretty significant prospect. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're looking at it optimistically, you're hoping he kind of follows the Gary Sanchez path of a catcher who has a, a rocket arm and has struggled with his receiving and just keeping the ball uh, in front of him and, and not run to the backstop. Uh, a couple times uh, a week to try to chase those uh, all those pass balls he's been giving up, and I think Alfaro really did make strides in terms of his his catching, his blocking, receiving. I mean, there, there's still a ways to go for him back there, but he really did clean that up. Uh, the, the arm strength showed in, in terms of his caught stealing rate this year uh, for the first time in a while. Yeah, I mean, for a guy who's had I think. 
pure arm strength can be can be overrated sometimes, especially for catchers. It's, it's easy to see a, a guy behind the plate with a big arm and just be wowed by it, but there's a lot more to catching than that, and there's a lot more to even just throwing out runners than that. I mean, aside from the, the pitcher, who, who has a significant amount of control over uh, controlling the running game and then throwing out base runners, but just footwork, transfer, you know, how quickly you can exchange the ball and, and get rid of the ball is is essential. I mean, we're just thinking about Pudge Rodriguez, who's a Hall of Famer, and everybody talks about his arm, but the guy also got rid of the ball in, in a heartbeat. It was in his glove and basically already in his hand ready to, to throw the ball. Uh, so there's, there's a lot more that goes into throwing out runners than just arm strength. Obviously, you can't quite teach that, that arm that Alfaro has, but I think he did a lot more things to help him get rid of the ball quickly this year. Uh, and then, look, there's still the plate discipline on him, and then obviously with Nick Williams, too, is still a, a wart on, on him. And that's a, that's a, that's a weakness he's going to have to address, but it's I don't – I think especially as long as he stays behind the plate, which I'm, I'm a lot more comfortable projecting him to do now, even even with that approach, the, the power is there for him to be more of a power-driven offensive value type of catcher. The, the thing that stood out to me watching him in spring training uh, last year in Clearwater was I've seen him for multiple years now. I've been fortunate enough. I mean, I remember the first time I saw uh, Alfaro was, whew, Four years ago, I guess, at spring training for the Rangers. That would have probably been before that group went to Hickory and there it was him and Gallo and, and all those guys. And he's he's just a lot quieter behind the plate uh, than he was earlier in his career, which I, I think kind of fits with all this. To do all this, the key thing is, is he's putting in the work to make the improvement that he needs to make because Jorge Alfaro, even average defensive catcher, can be a very, very valuable big leaguer. Jorge Alfaro moving from there to some other position is much, much sketchier to say, hey, this guy's going to be a productive big leaguer. And he, he really did take some steps on that, on, on kind of that, that's in that direction. I, I want to skip down. You knew I was going to ask you about him because Sixto Sanchez fascinates me. I think he fascinates you as well. He's six foot, uh, 200, uh, right-hander out of the Dominican, signed in 15, and... Wasn't for a whole lot of money. Boom, he goes to the GCL. 5-0, 0.50. When you say domination, um, no one really hit him. 44 Ks, 8 walks, and 54 innings. 181 average against. And he did that with a fastball that will touch some 99s. What is there? <laughs> I'll put it this way. I'll put it a little differently to you, Ben. Pour a little bit of cold water on why you know, like the overheated I'm getting about Sixto Sanchez, or can you? Uh, I mean, it's there's a lot to like. <laughs> like you said, it's uh, it's an electric fastball, big time velocity and movement, and it's you can see it in the numbers. Hitters just do not square him up well at all. Uh, you know, he wasn't necessarily putting up an overwhelming strikeout rate. I mean, he struck out, uh, you know, a fair number of guys, but it's just uh, that fastball was really difficult, especially for both Coast League hitters to to put the barrel on the ball. And then, and then he commands it well, too. You don't, especially for a guy who hasn't been pitching 
for for all that long. This guy does it. He does it easy, and he, he knows how to locate the fastball. And then he backs it up with a couple of off-speed pitches and, and the breaking ball and, and the changeup that uh, both will you know, have a chance to be or are already flashing plus pitches. And I think with more experience uh, in terms of just sharpening those pitches and and knowing when and, and how to use those in, in the right situations, he, you're going to see the, the strikeout rate just jump for him, uh, possibly as, as quickly as, as this year. I mean, this is a guy who has a chance to uh, get better very quickly and, and move quickly, too, because not only is it electric stuff, but he, like we were talking about, just does it so easily and, and already has such good command. I mean, you, you compare him to Franklin Killame, and, and people ask me, well, you know, why would you, why did you rank Sixto Sanchez above Franklin Killame? And, and I think you talked to, you know, you talked to different pro scouts uh, who, who cover the Phillies. There are, you, you definitely have guys who would rank Killame over Sanchez. But for me, yeah, okay, Killame was is in low A last year. Sanchez was in the GCL. So there's, there's some, you know, Killame is a little bit further along. Uh, but it's not like Killame is quite knocking on the door. Of, of the major league roster yet. I think we're going to see Sixto Sanchez probably go to low A this year, and Kilme will be in high A, and I think by the end of the year, those guys might end up being teammates because Kilme, you know, the, one of the big weaknesses on him right now is that he's got to he's got to improve his command uh, and come up with a changeup. Well, Sanchez has the changeup, he has the command. There's, I think it's uh, just. Pretty much his stuff is as good, if not better, across the board. And his command, arguably right now, might be even better than Franklin Kilomay's. Uh He's a better athlete. He does a better job of, of repeating his delivery. So, look, obviously we're, we're talking about a guy who's thrown about 54 innings, I think, last year. So you've always got to see how uh, the durability uh, holds up for him. It's a huge factor for pitchers. You've got to see how he's able to hold up over that full season's workload, and we'll see how he how the results are once he gets to a full season league. But when you look at all of the, the inputs, all of the pitches and, and the command and the delivery, there's no real reason to see why the stuff won't translate as he, especially against low-way hitters, but even further as he moves up against upper-level hitters too. Uh, the thing that jumps out to me is, is that this time last year, Anderson Espinosa was coming off of a – a similar kind of a year in the, the, the complex leagues in GCL that, that really kind of blew people away as far as his stuff and kind of the advanced, how advanced he was for his age and all that. And this is nothing against Anderson Espinosa, but you did the GCL last year. You made those calls talking to scouts and, and managers about Anderson Espinosa. You did the GCL this year and you did this Phillies list, making those calls, talking about Sixto Sanchez. Compare them. Where is Sixto right now compared to where Anderson Espinosa was last year? I think Anderson Espinosa got a lot more hype last year at this point than, than say, Sixto Sanchez maybe is this year. But as far as stuff and, and where they are in their development, are they similar? Or is there things that really make Anderson Espinosa stand out as, no, at this time last year he was a significantly better prospect than Sanchez because of this? There's definitely some, some similarities. You're talking about high-octane stuff from guys with pretty easy deliveries, a uh, fair amount of polish in terms of, of what they're doing on the mound. I mean, at, at the same stage, um, I think Espinosa had, he was less experienced. He had 
Uh, he's a little bit younger than Sixto Sanchez, and and Sanchez is more of a more of a maxed out, almost I don't want to say maxed out, but more certainly more of a filled out frame with with less strength projection. Mm-hmm. Not that you really need a ton of more. Not that anyone's really counting on Sanchez needing to fill out more and then throw harder. I mean, this guy can already top out at, at 99 miles an hour. He's got a plus fastball. It's not a you know maybe a grade higher than that. Uh, on the fastball, so there, you don't need much more physical projection there. But uh, there were, there were, I, I would give a, a, a bit of an edge to Espinosa in terms of just being younger, having less professional experience uh, than uh, than Sanchez, and, uh, and just in, and a little bit more polish at at the same level than uh, than Sanchez was at, at the same uh, at the same stage of his uh, at the same age. Right. I mean, the other thing that I, I can't get over, and it doesn't mean anything long term, but it does. We're still close enough to this that it, it does still have some impact. Is is that Espinoza was considered the top, if not well, one of the top, if not the top pitcher in his international class, and, and Sanchez was at that point not considered that. Now, again, that's not that many years ago. Um, so there is a little bit longer track record with Anderson Espinosa as well. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is uh, Espinosa was our our number one pitching prospect on the international market in 2000, and it must have been 14 now. Uh, some of the years tend to run together, um, but but yeah. Whereas Sixto Sanchez was just the. Uh, I mean, the Phillies have done a. A tremendous job in terms of identifying uh, international, identifying and then developing cheap international pitching, probably better than than any organization in baseball. I mean, you can look up and down just about every organization in the game, and, and they'll have some prospect or, or multiple prospects who they sign for fairly cheap signing bonuses who've turned into legit pitching prospects for him, but I don't think anybody, especially in the pitching side, has been able to match what the Phillies have done in terms of identifying uh, and signing and, and developing Latin American pitching in terms of guys who signed for $100,000 or less. I mean, we mentioned Sixto Sanchez and uh, Franklin Kilome already, uh, but you just look up and down the organization, whether it's you know uh, Adonis Medina, or you know Jose Tavares, who I mean basically was just I'll sign for any money you want, and that's how they signed him. Um, Ricardo Pinto, uh, Elmiri Garcia, uh, they they just have so many different guys who are legitimate prospects who were cheap bonus guys, and then obviously Sanchez is the the best of that bunch. Yeah, I, I that's one of the things that does stand out about this this farm system to me is is that. It's the depth of it. There's a lot of guys who I find at least somewhat interesting. I had a, a scout who saw the uh, the low-class uh, Lakewood club this year, and he said, you know, there may not be a pitcher on this staff who I think is really going to be an impact guy at the big league level, but, man, there are a lot of guys on this staff who I think will pitch at the big league level. And I think that's probably true for, for the entire organization. I mean, the, the two biggest – the two highest upside guys in terms of pitching in the system are are Sixto Sanchez and Franklin Killame, and they've got some some guys at the upper levels. You know, Nick Pavetta 
uh, you know, uh, there's some other guys, Eshelman, those types of guys who could be, uh, you know, solid, solid big leaguers, but a lot of the, the big upside guys are in the lower levels. But, yeah, up and down the system, there's just uh, there's just an incredible amount of, of depth, even just trying to, you know, some systems when we're doing a top 30, you get to about, you know, 25, 30, and you're like, all right, this is a good place to – a good place to cut it off. We've about covered all of the significant prospects here, but then doing the Philly system because of, you know, one, I think the international program that we just talked about has been extremely productive in, in finding those under-the-radar type guys. And then the fact that they've made so many trades to bring in guys like Nick Williams and Jorge Alfaro uh, or, or Victor Arano, uh, Joely Rodriguez, all these guys that they've added to the system as they – as they rebuild the major league club, there's about you know 10, 15, 20 guys who I'm like, man, in, in a lot of organizations, I'd put this guy in a in a top 30. Yeah, I, I feel like that. I, I completely agree. Well, before we wrap this up, I do have to ask you about two of the the most fascinating, and I would also say two of the most divisive prospects when we talk to scouts that are out there. Two guys coming who had great years in 2016. Reese Hoskins, who number six on our top ten, first baseman, and then Dylan Cousins, who's number ten. Now, you can find scouts, I know I've talked to them, who really believe in Reese Hoskins. You can find scouts who don't. You can take that and double it, and you can find scouts who do not have any belief in Dylan Cousins, and you find other scouts who believe that Dylan Cousins could be a, an impact big leaguer. What I mean, you did a lot of reporting on this. What did you find when you were talking to people? Did it? I mean, were you hearing kind of the same thing, the the wide range, or were, was there any consensus you were able to get? Yeah, it's uh, it's a huge split camp on both guys. I mean, Cousins especially is, is particularly divisive because you you do see the tools, especially the power, is extremely loud, and you can't say he, he hasn't performed either because there's performance there too but the strikeouts you just cannot ignore how many times the the guy has swings and misses whereas with Hoskins it's very consistent performance you can't really poke a hole in this guy's performance record uh, but there is definitely a split camp on him too in terms of well he's a you know and not he's an unathletic he's he's not a he's not Billy Butler but he's not he's an unathletic right-handed hitting first baseman uh, who I think guys have always questioned whether whether the offensive impact is is going to really be enough to carry him as a first baseman which is again why he was a, a fifth round pick uh, but to me I, I have more optimism for Hoskins and then I, I can totally see and I think there is definitely risk that he, he may end up being uh, a 4A type player, more of a, you know, more of a Nick Evans type guy. Uh, but I think that in his case, I don't think the issue with him is, is bat speed. I don't see uh, a slow bat with him. And yeah, he obviously Redding, I think, throws another element into play here because that ballpark is just a, a tremendous ballpark for hitters. So it creates even even more skepticism among scouts who, who go in and, and see that club, especially when they're playing at home. But this guy crushed the Reese Hopkins. We talk about he 
crush the ball on the road too. So right, uh, I mean, you know, Reese Hoskins splits were not as concerning in that manner as Dylan Cousins, but it's one of those double-edged swords. Dylan Cousins, his numbers in Reading were so good that even though when you look at his numbers on the road, he was essentially the same hitter that he's always been in before, all that, he just was, but he literally turned into pretty much some version of uh, giant head Barry Bonds when he was at Reading. Hoskins, it was a little bit more consistent home and road and maybe a little, even though it was very loud, maybe a little less loud overall. It, at least a lot. I mean, again, it's it's why that there's such divisive prospects. Yeah, I think that to me the edge goes for Hoskins because he's he's just a better hitter mm-hmm. than Cousins is. I mean, Cousins has more raw power, but Hoskins has has plus power. I think he has a, a better swing. Look, there, there's definitely times where he gets long, and then there's some stiffness in there at times. That there's some scouts that think, look, just once this guy faces better pitching, uh, it, it's gonna, you know, he's gonna go the way of maybe like a Jerry Sands type guy. And I can totally see that risk, but it, it's hard to ignore the track record that he's put up all the way up through Double uh, A. I, I think he he certainly doesn't strike out to the degree that Dylan Cousins does. I think he's a better hitter. Uh, he's got patience. He, he's able to, to work the count and, and get on base to go with his power. And then people will say, well, he's, he's not that athletic over at first base, which I never really understood all that much. Uh, he's, he's an adequate defensive first baseman. I don't need a first baseman to be all that athletic. I need the first baseman to hit. I mean, yeah, look, it's great if they can defend at first base the way – uh, you know, a Cody Bellinger can. But few can. Few can. Yeah, few can. It, you know, Jose Abreu doesn't is not that athletic or, or agile over at first base. Uh, he just mashes. I mean, that's what you need out of a first baseman. And I have a lot more confidence um, in, in Hoskins' ability as a hitter compared to, to Cousins. I, I don't care so much about the athleticism from a, a first baseman, whereas Dylan Cousins is, I mean, look, love the power. He, I mean, yeah, we talked about his home road splits. The the raw power is, you know, at least 70 raw power, maybe tickling an, an eight on the on the two to eight scale. That's, that's not a ballpark factor uh, or just a ballpark uh, artificial creation. With Cousins, the, the big concern is the, the strikeouts and, and the swing that leads to all those strikeouts. It's, there's just a lot of a lot of empty swings, and when you watch the way his swing works, it's he's trying to hit home runs a lot, right. and that that works. And he, I I could even see him getting to the major leagues and and hitting a lot of home runs, but it being a lot of uh, you know coming with too many strikeouts. Look, if you're going to be a power hitter, sometimes that comes with strikeouts, and that can be uh, a fine trade-off. But when you are striking out uh, at the level that that he is in Double A, that's that's a huge red flag. I mean, we've seen guys, whether it's uh, you know Carlos Peguero or or other guys like that, Stephen Moya, who have these you know can can hit a ton of home runs and have big power. In uh, hit, hit those home runs in Double A, Triple A, and then when they get to the major league level, it's it's a lot more difficult. Better pitching, 
is able to to exploit the holes that they have. Yeah, I, again, they're they're two tough, very tough guys to rank. Um, you know, we will find out a lot more as twenty seventeen rolls along. They're going to be both, you know, probably playing in a park that's a little less uh, conducive to the home runs. Well, let's be honest, almost every park is a little less conducive to the home runs than, than Reading. But Ben, as, as we wrap this up, when you look at again, this is a deep system. It's a good system. So as you look past number ten and you look beyond that, is there anyone that that's kind of a, a personal fave of yours that people will be able to read about in the handbook? Yeah, I really like Daniel Brito. Uh, I've liked him ever ever since the Phillies signed him out of uh, Venezuela a couple of years ago. I think he's he's just extremely skinny and lacks much physicality and strength right now. I think once that comes, you're going to see him uh, really jump up uh, in terms of both the, the performance and, and prospects. Status. He, he wasn't too far off of the top 10. I think in a lot of systems, he might be a top 10 guy. Uh, you don't typically hear about minor league second baseman, especially in rookie ball, getting that kind of talk. But I think the Phillies just decided, uh, you know, he has played. He signed as a shortstop. We could put him in center field. We could put him at second base because uh, he's probably not a shortstop long term. So they made a very early decision earlier than a lot of organizations do to move him over to second base. And, and he's, he's proven himself to be at least an average to a, maybe a tick above average defender uh, at that position, at least for his age and projecting forward uh, down the, the road. That's probably the type of defender you're going to see him being at the major league level. It's, it's, it's you know, several years away, but this guy has uh, just a knack for putting the bat to the ball. Very good. Hand-eye coordination. He doesn't swing and miss. He doesn't swing and miss all that much. Uh, he's able to hit fastballs. Able to hit off-speed pitches. Has a really good idea for the strike zone. Like we were talking about earlier, this guy is maybe six-one, one-sixty, uh, really skinny. So you're not seeing a ton of power right now. I don't think that's ever going to be a big part of his game. But a guy who can play in the middle of the diamond, who can hit, who can get on base. Uh, rack up a fair amount of doubles with a line drive type approach, I think is a pretty valuable guy for them. No, I, I agree. I think second base is also a pretty good position for the, uh, for the Phillies. I'm a, I'm a Scott Kingery fan myself. So it's, and it makes, you know, in Brito's case, yeah, they moved him a little quicker than you normally see, moving him over. At the same time, if, if things go as the Phillies expect, um, shortstop's not really going to be available anytime soon. So it, it's not a bad thing to move him over uh, right away. Well, thank you, Ben. We do really appreciate that. A lot of deep dive into the Phillies system. We do have a special treat for Phillies fans. We also recorded an interview with Mickey Moniak, first pick in the draft, number two prospect in the Phillies system. Sound quality may not be perfect on this. This is actually recorded when we were taking Mickey Moniak to the airport from the Baseball America banquet. But we thought you'd want to hear a little bit of what Moniak's done in the offseason, how he's gotten bigger, and uh, a little bit about what the first year of being a uh, pro for the number one pick in the 2016 draft. So here's Mickey Moniak. So we're going to record a we're recording a Baseball America podcast here with Mickey Moniak, number one pick in the 2016 draft, Phillies uh, center fielder and 
maybe a little noisy because we're taking Mickey Mo, Mickey Mo, as we love to call him, to the airport. So John Manuel, Mickey Moniak, and John, take it away. Well, that was my first question I asked you yesterday, Mickey, and in our Baseball America cash cab yesterday with you and Kyle Lewis in the back seat. I texted my 12-year-old, by the way, and said I had Mickey Mo and uh, Kyle Lewis in the car today, and my 12-year-old was like, Awesome. What did Mickey Moniak say? He's like brushed aside Kyle Lewis. He's like, what did Mickey Moniak talk oh, about? So, so yeah, it was fun to, fun to have you guys yesterday, our high school player of the year. And you came to the VA Gala last night. And uh, I always think the Baseball American Gala is a big deal. But, I mean, like, this, that was your first, uh, hopefully first of many. But what did you think last night oh, in that it was, room? It was a great time. You know, just being surrounded by all those, you know, huge names in baseball guys, you know, I look up to and guys that, you know, you, everywhere you look, you're like, oh, well, I know him. I know who that is. I know who that yeah. guy is. That it was just, it was, it was a special, you know, time, and it was, it was a great night. It was, it was a really fun night. We well, really appreciate you flying out from the coast for it. There's a billion ways I could go with it, but I, I love talking about some of the moments that I know you for, and that people, you know, have gotten to know. The first thing I got to ask you about is that catch the area codes last year. Right. I mean, that catch like became <laughs> to me. I mean, like we knew who you were. You've been on the 15U team with USA Baseball. You, you're going to be on the 18U team. Um, you know, I talked to Eric uh, to uh, I'm wondering if Sean Cole, who was your 18U national team director for that team, wins a gold medal in Japan. So you had some moments that were to come. You already you already had a reputation in in the industry, but that right. that catch was kind of like your viral moment in a way. Take take me through that at the area code games and kind of what that play was like. I mean, in the moment, I was just trying to get a good jump on the ball. I didn't know if I was going to get there. Honestly, I thought that ball possibly could go over the fence. I just, you know, right when he hit it, I didn't even look at the ball. I just turned around and started running straight backwards. And it wasn't until about a couple steps to the warning track where I looked up. And then as I looked up, I saw it. And then, but I knew I was I knew I was getting close to the warning track, so I knew that that wall. You know, Blair Field wasn't wasn't gonna be very forgiving, <laughs> so I kind of had that in the back of my head. But I no, I looked up and I, it kind of just you know I kind of I tried to get a good route and it ended up getting a good you know route straight back, ran to a spot and look up and it's right there and you know I kind of tracked it into my glove and you know after that I I was worried about the wall and then kind of just <laughs> hit the wall hit the wall and spun and you know did my best not to you know knock out any tooth or teeth or anything like that, but. That, that 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 to me that catch puts you on the map as like okay I, I knew who you were but like okay this is why this guy's potential top of the draft draft big because I mean everyone already had you already had a reputation though of already being like a, a, a really advanced defensive center fielder is that kind of like you know at what point in your amateur career did you start realizing hey I'm pretty good at playing center field like when and when did you start playing center yeah I didn't start playing center till I mean pretty late not till pretty much freshman year of high school Okay. I was I was always a shortstop, yeah. and um, I was on a travel team, and we had a couple of good shortstops, uh, you know, that were obviously better than I was. And my my travel coach, you know, saw that I you know, had some speed and I could. I, the place for me would have been center field, you know, in the future, and he put me there. And ever since then, I kind of just, you know, I I took off. Like that's that's where I stuck, and I love playing center field. It's, it's always been it's always been fun, you know playing center Roman you know get hit, hitting the gaps yeah and getting the balls in the gaps stuff like that so you gotta like to run to play center field you're gonna yeah. do a lot of running it, yeah it's it's uh it's fun well the other the other part for us was you were so often linked with Blake Rutherford you guys are 18 new teammates UCLA both committed to UCLA 
Um, you know, Blake is older than you. He's bigger than you. He's a little more physical, but just completely different type of player. Um, but at the same time, in the the way the teams look at and the way we look at a lot, high school outfielders from Southern California. Right. How do you guys kind of, did you guys kind of have a little friendly rivalry? Was there any rivalry at all, like come draft time? How close are you guys kind of like, what's that? Because for us, we always linked you guys together. What was that relationship right. like for you guys? Well, me and Blake, Blake's one of my best friends. You know, he's, he, ever since we met at, uh, you know, the 40 man in North Carolina, Blake's always, you know, we, we kind of became really close and, you know, we still hang out to this day. He'll come drive down to San Diego, like cool. during the off season and, you know, obviously, there wasn't really a rivalry, I guess you could say. I think it was more of just, like, a competitive yeah. a competitive rivalry. We didn't keep really tabs try. on each other, yeah. Yeah. Not so much keep tabs, but, like, when we were playing together, you know, we'd all, we would push each other. Yeah. You know, that would, that's the thing. And, he, and we'd push each other. Like, we played against each other. I remember playing against him in, uh, in the Boris Classic in high school. Yep. And that was that was a fun time because, you know, we I, I, I call him, like, prior to the game and just, you know, talk crap and all that <laughs> stuff and it, it, it was fun and then once once the game came it was just it was a good time and you know it was a good game too we ended up winning in like extra innings so. that's that's one of the other moments so that we, it's a good way to wrap is the Boris classic that's the game where I heard that Pat Gillick and other Philly, Phillies guys were watching and that you hit a triple in that game one of those games the Boris classic where it got to the gap and you turned a little extra gear going around first base do you remember what i'm talking about yeah 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 yeah, yeah that's yep. that's that's the moment that i had other scouts telling me and they could see the excitement in the phillies face faces of the of the phillies personnel there that that they were sold on you did you you had a good week it sounds like a boris classic right yeah no the boris classic was uh it was real fun it was the first time because my head coach at, at la costa canyon you know we played you know we're we're obviously one of the top teams in california and you know, top programs, and but we always stay pretty local. We go to the Lions tournament, right. which is a la- national tournament. But this is really the first time where we kind of, you know, went up north to play. You know, all those other teams, and it was it was really fun. It was a learning experience. You know, definitely for my coach and you know for our program, and it was really fun. We came out like two and two. Um, you know, had a good had a good tournament. I played pretty well. You know, it was it was a fun time, especially being around you know all those good teams, and then obviously there's a lot of a lot of stuff that comes with the Boris Classic, you know, scouts, all that. You know, it's kind of a big, it's a bigger stage, yeah. so to speak, for high school, high school baseball. So the the one question I want to ask you: so now, once you became a Philly, that was a pretty talented GCL Phillies team yes. you guys had there. I mean, right. you you knew that coming in. I mean, it was a, it was a good draft, but but then the guy that kind of also, you know, you, you, again, you had Gowdy, you had got, but you then you have Sixto Sanchez, mm-hmm. who. That's a pretty special arm, isn't it? Oh, he's uh, he's he's unbelievable. You know, he came out of nowhere. You know, I, I, going in, people would talk about, you know, guy Ortiz, you know, guys who they, they signed. And, yeah, Jalen Ortiz yeah. got a pretty pretty high signing bonus. Oh, so. yeah, Jay, Ortiz. We, me and Ortiz room together. And great. big power. Huge power. He's <laughs> it's he's hit some balls that uh, I still don't know if they landed yet. But <laughs> no, Sixto Sixto is um, he's a guy who. Looks like he's throwing 85, but it's coming out 97, 98, and and it's not it's not a wild 98. Like he 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 hits his spots, and the thing is, when he doesn't hit his spots, he knows it. So he he you know he's not going out there just to throw 98 and that's it. He's he's trying to hit spots, and you know it's it's effortless. You know he's got and he's got a good breaking ball. So I think uh, I'm excited to you know play with him. 
you know, in the years to come and see where, where we both end up. Kevin Gowdy, Cole Stoby, like you said, you had some teammates, fellow draftees who you bonded with. Uh, pretty deep Phillies organization, uh, top to bottom. And it sounds like the GCL team was, was pretty good too. But one of the big reasons why we like that system is it's got Mickey Moe in it. So <laughs> this is a blast, uh, Mickey. We loved uh, having you. I loved being your Uber driver for the couple of days. I yeah, appreciate it. It was fun. And uh, we look forward to having you back at future BA Galas. Uh, uh, as a, whether it's minor league player of the year, major league player of the year, well, uh, yeah, why limit it? You awesome. Know? All right, thanks, man. Sounds good. Thank I'm going to just drop you right here. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> that's okay. This concludes our program. Want more in-depth baseball coverage? Be a better fan. Visit BaseballAmerica.com to get more comprehensive baseball coverage. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.